Now, I want to take you to Philippians chapter 3. This is such a rich text. Yesterday, Pastor Mike and I were meeting with several people in our church, and there was a comment made that, that just resonated with this text. Uh, someone said, we need a theology of suffering. This is Philippians chapter 3. It's a theology of suffering. If I were to ask you, are you suffering? A lot of you would initially think, yes, I'm suffering, and I would probably agree with you. Perhaps your marriage is, is a place of pain rather than peace. Perhaps financially you have been scraping the bottom of the metaphorical financial barrel and you don't know how you're going to pay your rent next month. Perhaps at work, every time you go to work, you feel anxiety and depression swell because of how miserable and hard it is. Maybe the clouds of internal sorrow, without explanation, are dark and heavy, and your life is filled with grief, and you don't even know why, and so you can't even look for the light to get out. Our world, our church family, we go through sorrows. If I were to ask how many of you at times have gone to the doctor and said, hey, can you help me with this depression, this anxiety? My guess is that there would be numerous hands up. We go through hard times. We go through difficult times. We go through miscarriages and the death of loved ones. Christians experience the ugly side of divorce sometimes. We watch our children wander away from the Lord and our heart breaks. And despite long hours of prayer, we just don't see them come back. The Bible calls us to understand how to hold firm, stand firm, it says in chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1, rejoice in the Lord. Do you know why the Bible says those things? Because in suffering, we lose joy. And when we lose joy, we can loosen our hold on those things that give us joy. We lose sight of the joy that we should have in Christ. And so the apostle, rather than saying, hey, don't worry about suffering, it'll be better tomorrow. Rather than saying, hey, it's all in your minds, like Christian science, which is neither Christian nor science might say. Rather than saying, hey, don't worry about it, heaven's coming, suffering's nothing. The Bible says suffering is, in fact, a deep temptation that will loosen your hold on Christ if you don't deliberately look to the Lord as your center of hope. Your place of joy is in the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 1 ends that admonition by standing firm. Because, in fact, often when suffering, we realize that there are escapes that will get us out of suffering, but those escapes are often sinful. And so we respond with sinful escaping, whether it is to subdue a rebel child with unkind, angry words that get them to be what we want them to be. But that escape was ungodly, sinful. And we could go through all of those other sorrows I mentioned and look for ungodly escapes and probably find them. And so if the Christian who is overwhelmed with sorrow in the middle of suffering is looking for an escape, Satan will tempt you to go for it. And the Lord is proving your faithfulness by offering it. I want you to consider that. 
The Lord has offered you an opportunity to escape by giving you the freedom to sin, testing your resolve to hold to Christ. We come to the text this morning in verse 8 through 11 that we're going to focus on, and I'm going to be very deliberate so that you might have a better theology of suffering. I, I could probably give you three reasons why you need this. First, you might be suffering. Second, you will be suffering. Third, you're in a church where others are suffering or will be. You need to know how to rejoice in the Lord. You need to know how to encourage others to look to the Lord and find joy in Him. You need to encourage others to stand firm. Because sometimes giving up makes every sense to the mind that's ensnared by sin. Discouraged and defeated and lost. I don't mean unsaved. I mean just lost in terms of where to go. I ran across a song Recently, I was on my way to my dad's home. It's about a three-hour drive, and my wife and I are totally different. I like noise in the background. She likes quiet in the background. It probably has something to do with the fact that she's given piano lessons and had to listen to noise for years. So we get in the car, and I turn on the radio, and of course, if I'm listening to radio music, I have no control over its theology. So put on your ears of discernment. This is, this is one of those songs where I want you to decide in your own heart before I say anything good or bad. I know your past was dark, but there's a brighter future for you. Sometimes the breaking down is the beginning of a breakthrough made new. So no more living like everyone's or everything's unforgiven when that's not true. Oh, because the hands that bear the scars say you are. Don't you know? You've got a soul worth saving. Oh, don't you know, don't you know, don't you know. The poetic depth is just killing me here. I'm hearing this song, and it probably clicks right about now. You're still a heart worth chasing. Oh, don't you know. There's a love reaching deeper behind the hurt in your eyes, a diamond that can still shine. I hope someday you realize what heaven already knows You've got a soul worth saving, a soul worth saving, a worthy soul, a treasured heart, beloved more than all the stars, made for heaven by design, worth the rescue every time. Some of you are going like, I don't know. I feel like this is tricky. Some of you are like, oh, that's bad. That's bad, right? It's bad. So, so let me see if I can, I can help you see from this text. This is the way to, to bring defeat. This is the way to bring depression. Is a song like this. This song, in fact, I think, is filled and laced with pride. And it goes to like the pride of identity. Who are you? I'm a soul worth saving. I mean, to tease that out. Jesus Christ made a good purchase decision when he laid down his infinite life for my finite life filled with sin and trash. Like, like stripping it all away. That is blasphemous idolatry. And in our heart of hearts, we know this. We know that we are not a soul worth saving. When you look in the mirror and you look honestly in the mirror, how much good is there inherently in you? You parents of like three-year-olds, two-year-olds, 
Did you, did you sit down and train your child to knock other kids on the head in the nursery when they get their toys stolen? Like, that soul from its moments of free action are freely expressing self-centeredness, pride, anger. I mean, lying. Which one of you sat down with your child and said, okay, when mommy asks, did you? And you know, on the other side of that, yes, is a whopping. Say, no, didn't. Doesn't matter if you have chocolate on your face. You did not eat the cake. There's no video evidence. You didn't do it. Say no. Who taught their child the lie? So when you look in the mirror, when you look in Scripture, you don't see a soul worth saving. Scripture repeatedly says you see a soul worth damning. Now here's where it leads to real problems in our Christian circles. You know it. And if your soul is worth saving on the basis of what you do, when your life is a struggle, when life is sinful, when your attitude is flaring in ways that you know don't please the Lord, you internally have the witness of the Holy Spirit saying you did wrong, you did wrong, you did wrong. And you hear a song like that, a soul worth saving, you say, I'm not worth saving. My husband can't even love me. How could heaven? It turns the hero of the story into us. And we know in our hearts we're no hero. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as the loss. Why is everything a loss? Because unlike the bad theology of that song, the apostle is looking at his soul and recognizing that no matter how righteous he was in external action, he is someone who has nothing by which to declare himself good in God's eyes. All of the righteousness that he had piled up, if he were to present them to God as a case for which God should accept him, he knows he will not be accepted. As a basis for confidence on why God should enter into a redeemed and loving relationship where God relates to us as Father and we respond to him as his children, Paul recognizes his righteousness is no standing at all. It's a loss. It's refuse, it's street sewage, it's trash. He's not looking at his goodness or his soul's worthiness and looking at those things and saying, see God, you should relate to me as a father. He looks at that and recognizes that that has robbed confidence that should be placed in Christ and transferred it to himself and he is no hero. I want to show you from the text this morning the clear, I think, theme of this text. And then next week, I want to show you how it works out. So, so let, me just, let me just defend the theme of the text. I want you to look in verse 7. Whatever gain I had, I counted loss for what? For the sake of Christ. Look in verse 8. The surpassing worth of, you guys with me in the text? Of knowing Christ. It's not just knowing Christ, it's Christ Jesus, my Lord. He's talking about a very personal, that is, he as an individual must come to Christ. This is not something that we do as a church. It's not something we do as a country where Paul looks at himself as Jewish. I might say us as a people. No, he's saying as an individual, I have come to Christ Jesus and know him and relate to him. Look at the end of that verse there. At the end of verse 8, that I may 
gain Christ. Look in verse 9, and be found in him. He's not talking about identity. He's talking about union. He's united to Christ in all of his saving work. It's not a psychological buzzword of identity. It's one of real saving connection. Look down at verse 10. That I may know him. And again, share in his sufferings, becoming like him. Look down at verse 12. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. We are speaking of walking in sweet fellowship, united to Christ, being conformed and shaped by his character. Or maybe we could just say, this is what it means to know Christ. Okay, so when I say know Christ, there's words Paul has just used that should be in our heads. Gaining Christ. Knowing Christ, being conformed to him, being found united in him, sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, being owned by Christ as his sweet child, and he, my great king. All of that. So when I say knowing Christ, pile all that in there. Because that's what, that's what the scripture is speaking of. That's the theme. And he lays that in contrast to someone who's living that they are confidently walking before God in goodness based on themselves. You see that contrast really, really clearly in verse 9. Being found in him, not having, so he talks about kind of two places where we can rest our confidence. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from doing the law, that's on one side, and on the other side is knowing Christ. All right, so this week, how do I know Christ? Next week, what it means to walk with Christ. Okay, so, so and those are two different things. Maybe you could think of one as, this is how I enter into fellowship and knowing Christ. This is what it looks like to actually walk in fellowship with Christ. And all of this is in the context of how we live in the middle of suffering. This is how we live life so that when suffering hits us, we don't lose our joy. Okay, so I'm just going to walk through uh, a few basic observations of the text. Come down with me to verse 8. I'm going to read down through verse 11. And then we're going to look at our new status kind of the basis or, or from where we get this new status and my response or the means to gaining the status. Look with me in verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Okay, so, so especially verses 10 and, 11, 10 and 11 will speak to what it means to walk in that knowledge of Christ, but verses 9 and 10 will lead us to how we enter into that knowledge of Christ. 
So this morning, that's especially what we're going to focus on is how do I enter into? We start with this new status. The requirement of, of rightly relating to God is a new status. And it, he says real boldly in verse 9, I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that's from God. So here's this new status. It is a genuine fellowship with God. And it's on the basis of God's acceptance of us. So for instance, in 1 John, we know that God is light and there's no darkness in him. And anyone that wants to fellowship with God must walk in the light as he is in the light. In order to have fellowship with God, you and I must be righteous. This is something the Jewish person knew in and out. It's something that often could be ignored in our culture. So, so the Apostle Paul is saying, in order to, to know Christ, to be united to him, and to have fellowship with Christ, I, I need a transformation. I need a new status. There is one way, one approach. I can be righteous by doing the deeds of the law. Or I can get a righteousness, an alien righteousness. Alien means something foreign to Paul. Something he didn't own. A righteousness that was granted to him. And so here's the picture that the apostle has. That that this most amazing display of God's goodness is that God in love sends his son to die for sinners. Who neither deserve nor are worth saving. They have no righteousness with which to appeal to God to save them. God saves us despite our unrighteousness because of his love. I mean, the most amazing thing about God's love is that despite who we are, he loves us. It is no noble thing to love something lovable. It is a noble thing to love the person who hurts you, to be faithful to the person who challenges you, who's unpleasant. It is a persistent love. It is a deep love. It is a sacrificial love. It is a love that overlooks the injuries. It is a love that surpasses the natural tendency to to pull to ourselves those things we enjoy and resist those things that cause us displeasure. God's love is an amazing love. God is the hero because he loves people like you and like me. And this secures for us so much. But God's son becoming human, walking on the roads of Israel, being born in Bethlehem, being raised in the rural town of Nazareth, these are real historical facts. This is no divine fiction. The righteousness that is granted to the Apostle Paul and to all those who find themselves described in the next few lines of this text is a real earned righteousness. God did not fabricate it, pull it out of his back pocket and slap it on you. This is a righteousness that Christ, through the gritty determination and faith-filled, spirit-energized obedience that he lived during his 30-some years, earned, is the obedience described in chapter 2 that he was obedient to the point of death. All of this is meritorious. Unlike our works that are tainted with our sinful hearts and our, and our complex motives. Like, have you ever served and you hope people notice? But you love Jesus too. And it's like 97% good motives because you love Jesus. But 3% you kind of hope people see. Jesus never had a false motive. Jesus never had a taint of sin. 
And so all of the work and labor and, and obedience that he lived during his life becomes our righteousness. So that when God views his children, he views them on the basis of what Christ has done. In real time, in true historical fact, God saves us because of the facts of history that Christ has already accomplished. Now, the only reason I emphasize it like that is because I think one of the things we struggle with in suffering is wondering if God's word is true. And in true events, in true fashion, Christ is righteous for your sakes. All of the words and all the promises of Scripture, not one of them has ever fallen down as untrue. Every promise God has given is either perfectly fulfilled already or will still be, but none of them have been twisted into a lie and disproven because God is true. And God is good. Because in the sacrificial death of Christ, God putting on him our sin so that he could give you the righteousness that Christ earned, an alien righteousness because it's not yours by inherent doing of your part, but because it is Christ, it is not yours, it is given to you. That proves the goodness of God. God has taken from his own storehouse by sending his son. And from that same supply, the eternal son of God grants to you the gift that is only yours by the incarnation, the faithful life of obedience and righteousness and the suffering and death on the cross followed by his resurrection. He grants that to you because he's good, not because you're good. The security of salvation is anchored to the goodness of God. It is anchored to the truthfulness of God. The integrity of God and his righteousness is that he did not merely wipe away your sins and act like they've never been done. Like some parent of a spoiled brat who doesn't want to discipline their child so they ignore the badness. God has not ignored one single sin. All the sins of all of the believers of all of the ages were nailed to the cross. And all of the sins of all of the ages of all of those who will never believe in Christ will be theirs for eternity on their account for which they will suffer an eternal condemnation because God is righteous. So when God offers you righteousness, he offers it not on the basis of what you have done, but on the basis of Christ. And if you were to accumulate all the good of all the ages that you could possibly do, and were all of the good of all of the ages of all people except Christ laid to your account, it would still not be good enough to enter into heaven for one moment. There is no one who is good, none who seeks after God. All of our righteous deeds that we do in our own effort without Christ, without the Holy Spirit strengthening our motives and purifying them, all of them are as filthy menstrual rags. So here's the hope of this verse. The Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus sees this and sees his righteousness for the decaying refuse and rubbish that they are and he clings to Christ. And now in jail 
With the Philippians suffering as well, he recognizes that suffering might cause us to let go of Christ in order to escape the hardship of the moment. And he says, but in Christ you are righteous. In Christ you are righteous. So this new status of righteousness because of the work of Christ is given to whom? Well, first let's back up. How do you get this righteousness? Don't miss this. The Apostle Paul is very careful. This is why I think it's good for us to walk through this slowly. I have this righteousness that comes not from the law, but a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. Righteousness from where? From God. God the Father, who places on Christ all of the sins of all of the believers of all of the ages, is the same one who places on your account the righteousness of Christ. Again, this is why I think the word alien is a good word for us to use. It's it's not ours. That righteousness is not something that in any way I can be like, look what I did. Not one little piece of credit lies in my account for anything I've done. It is from God. It is God who in holiness judged his son as though sinner so that he can judge me as though I'm righteous. So that the righteousness, although it's alien and it's giving to me, now becomes truly mine on my account. So that in the courtroom of God, his evaluation of me is now that this righteousness which was not earned by me, which I have done nothing to get, is granted to me in pure grace. Again, God has pilfered his own storehouse to give me something because my storehouse is full of sewage. In my ledger, I thought I had a lot of righteousness, Paul says. But when I saw it for what it was truly, when the Spirit opened my eyes and I saw my storehouse, all that was filled with was sewage tanks of trash rubbish. And Christ, from the storehouses of his righteousness, has granted me his, and the Father is the one who placed it on my account. I am righteous. This is the basis by which we end a prayer in Jesus' name. On what basis do you enter into the holy throne room of God? It is the basis of the gift of righteousness that God the Father has given to you. We, we just run into the boardroom, the throne room, the very presence of the king of the universe as though we belong because we do. Right? We're his children, John 1 says. We have the right to become the children of God because we believed on his name. If you were to go to a massive Fortune 500 company, I can only imagine how busy those CEOs are. They probably lost everything dear to them except the company. But if you saw a young child run into the boardroom and go up and talk to this busy CEO who's got no time for anybody who doesn't have tons of dollars to their name, but this penniless little kid runs in and grabs his single and undivided attention and starts talking to him, we all presume one thing, it must be his, his child. Because God grants us this righteousness, we can enter into the throne room of grace, not on the basis of who we are or how we identify ourselves, but on the basis of Jesus Christ's righteousness which is ours from God. That is the source of our new status. Finally, I think this text tells us 
how we respond. How do I get this new status? God gives it to me, but on what basis? What, what is the means by which I pursue this righteous standing? The text says twice, faith. Faith is the means. Look, look in the text. I have a righteousness that comes through faith. What is that faith placed in? What is the object of this faith? It says faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. So, so here's not, please be cautious with this. God is not telling us that faith is something rewardable. It's not like I could, I could do, excuse Paul's words here, I could be circumcised, I can be of the tribe of Benjamin, I can be of the people of Israel, I can be a Pharisee of the Pharisees, I can persecute the church. All those are bad works. But faith is a good work. That is not what Paul is saying here. That is not what Scripture is saying. Faith is not a good work. If anything, a good way to understand faith is faith is an anti-work. Faith is the means by which I reject any confidence in me. And faith are the spiritual arms by which I cling to Christ alone. Who saves me? Not my faith. Jesus saves me. Faith inherently saves nobody. God saves you when you trust in him. That may be a little bit finally dividing for you all what what God is saying here, but I think it's clear enough in the text. My singular hope is Christ. My eyes of faith look not to faith, but to Christ. It is not that I believe enough, believe strongly enough, or that my faith is somehow a saving faith as opposed to an unsaving faith. The point is I trust Christ. I trust him. What do I trust about him? I think we've talked about it a lot this morning, so I'm not going to just like insult your intelligence, but it's the work of Christ, particularly a life of righteousness, his death on the cross, and his resurrection. Don't forget his resurrection. That is one of the central hopes of the sufferer. If you look down in verse 11, he makes that abundantly clear. We'll look at that next week. So the object of faith is Christ. Do you struggle with doubt because of sins that seem to captivate your attention? Almost like addictions. The young man going back again and again to pornography. The young lady who just struggles with identity issues and and self-hatred. The person who struggles with depression, and no matter how many times they climb out of that dark well, they fall back in. The solution is to begin with recognizing what Christ has accomplished on your behalf and clinging to him. Don't let your despair, your suffering, your hurt, your injury cause you to grow bitter. Do not not grow weary in doing well. Hold to Christ. If for no other reason, if God were to strip away everything of good in your life, if you have Christ, you have enough. Let me just personally testify like an example what I would mean. If, for whatever reason, on the way home from church today, my whole entire family were killed in a car accident, and I get home and my house is burnt to dust, and I call people up in the church and they say, we don't want to talk to you, we think God's just judging you, you're done, you're fired. And I find myself jobless, penniless, familyless, and I have Christ. When I get to heaven, you know who I'll see again? I would see my family, who knows Christ and loves him. But I would have Christ. My family would have to take a back seat. And the house, it's just stuff. 
and the job is just a means to honor Christ. And they're sweet gifts. Don't take me wrong. I really don't want to get fired. I don't want to lose my family, and I care about my house. But when I get to heaven, do you think I will take pride in my address or house? When I get to heaven and my children and my wife are there, I will have them back forever. And Christ will be there. What reason is there to lose myself in sorrow? Anything of real eternal worth will meet me on the other side in heaven. Everything else is just part of this earth. And that, that's one of the struggles we have, right? Like in trials and in suffering, it's almost as though God is taking the temporary little trinkets of this world and pulling them out of our clutching fingers. It's like a child at Christmas at three years old. He likes the wrapping paper in the box more than the toy that was in it. And so mom says, hey, don't you like the toy? And the child's not letting go of that cardboard box. And finally the mom pries it away and the kid is inconsolably sorrowful because he's lost the box. Because he doesn't understand the joy of a real prize. Sometimes I think as Christians, that's us. We're clinging to the cardboard box of this life. And it's, it's meant to carry and deliver these things of significance and value. If at the least, that illustration energizes me to evangelize my own children. To invest in my life. To love not what the church gives me, but the people of the church. Because one day in heaven, I mean, this might be not a very pleasant sound for you, but maybe glorification will fix certain things like my voice, but you'll have to hear me sing forever. <laughs> heaven just got a little less heavenly for some of you. You're like, whew, I've been next to him forever. Our object of faith is Christ. We trust in him. Let me end with one final note to just press the goodness of God into your conscience as you walk away this morning. I want you to come back to verse 28. Faith is the means by which I cling to Christ. Faith then is the means by which I'm righteous. Because as I gain Christ, I gain his righteousness. As I know Christ, I gain his righteousness. As I'm conformed to his sufferings, I, I gain his righteousness. You cannot gain righteousness without gaining Christ and his sufferings and the fellowship of his resurrection. All of these things are part of what it means to know Christ. And so by believing, by trusting, I gain Christ. So, so let me just say this. If you don't know Christ, if you are not trusting in Christ Jesus, then your one singular hope of goodness in this life is trusting in Christ. But more than that, your singular hope of any goodness for all of eternity is Christ himself. Come to Christ. If anyone has sold you on praying this prayer and you have prayed words, you need Christ, not words. Prayers do not save people. Christ does. If you have made a profession of faith, but you do not walk with Christ in sweet union, if you do not know Christ, if you are not speaking to him, because you've kind of gone through the motions, but you don't know Christ, then come to Christ and cling to him. I wanted to show you how good God is. Chapter 1, verse 28. For it has been granted, excuse me, this is verse 29. For it has been granted to you that... For the sake of Christ, you should, 
going to take that word not out because it's, it's going to add another thing to it in that word not. That you should believe. You can say not only, but there's more coming. We'll look at that again next week. Suffering's coming. He already says, it has been granted that you should what? Believe. So here's the amazing goodness of God. Please catch this. Jesus Christ, John 3 says, is a, is a gift of God's love, right? God so loved the world that he sent his only son. That would include all of the suffering, all of the righteousness, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, all of the torture by the Roman soldiers. All of this was because God loved you. But Philippians 1, 29 says this, it has been granted, given, it has been a royal gift that you would do what? Believe. He did all the work to earn righteousness, to, to pay the penalty of death on the cross for our sakes, and now even our belief is a divine grant given to us. You are sitting as a believer, trusting and righteous in Christ because God is good. Because God is so good. He looks at you and he sees you with the infinite omniscience and he knows how bad your heart really is. He knows how, like a sheep, you wander your own way all the time. And the sweet shepherd calls you back. And he grants you to believe. He didn't just give you righteousness. He gave you the arms of faith by which you cling to Christ to get the righteousness. This is how sweet and good our God is. You believe because God granted it to you. You don't believe because you're smart. You don't believe because you figured it out. No human, because of insight into the divine will has unraveled the mysteries of the gospel and believed because of their intelligence. No religious person, by just pondering the wondrous sky, has ever come to saving knowledge of Christ. No one has ever believed without God granting belief. Now here's a couple things I think we should at least recognize. Part of that's providence. God gave to me parents. God gave to me brothers who didn't let me sing. If you're saved, you know, clap your hands. You laugh. That's the type of stuff God granted to me. Mean brothers. And for the first time in my life, I realized I need to get saved because I was not allowed to clap my hands because I did not have Christ. I sat in the front row of a church crying because I couldn't sing a song. I wasn't sad at all that I didn't have Christ. I was sad I couldn't clap. I couldn't stop my feet. Because it's if you're saved, you know it. And they knew I wasn't. It was on the left side of the front chair of an auditorium in Thousand Oaks, California, where I first knew I did not have Jesus. Who granted that moment to me? Brothers who are still jerks? I mean, were jerks? Or the goodness of Christ? Was it God's grant to me in that moment to awaken in me a recognition that I need Christ or not? Was it in God's wisdom when I came home and told my parents, they said, you're not ready. 
You want to sing a song, you don't want a Savior. It was God who granted me wise parents. It was God who gave my dad the wisdom to lead me through Scripture over the next months to a place where I wanted a Savior, not a song. It was God who has kept me believing in him. And I'm only saying what all of you could say. It would have different colors and different flavors, but it's the same thing. God grants you belief because he's good, because he's chosen to pour out like rain showers that never end his goodness on you. And sometimes those rain showers are not something we want because he says God has granted for you to not only believe, but also to suffer. So here's where we get wrong on suffering. We're like, God, you're so good, you saved me. But you're not good because I'm suffering. That's horrible theology. If God granted me brothers who caused my crying on the front row that led me to Christ, was that suffering good or bad? Oh, you all got good theology now? But when you're suffering, tell me that you don't feel like your suffering's wrong. From the same source of sweet goodness that brought you belief is the same goodness that brings you suffering. We are not called to escape suffering, but to cling to Christ as the rock in the middle of the raging rivers of suffering and not to let go, but to rejoice at a rock that doesn't move in suffering. To cling to Christ to rejoice in his steadiness, to rejoice in his grace, to have confidence that before God we are righteous and therefore all of the hurt, all of the injury, all of the suffering flows from a father who could not love us more. He could not be more good to his people. He could not act with more integrity and righteousness. He could not be more faithful to the truth. All of the promises in Christ are yes and thereby we say amen to the glory of God, because we cling to Christ and we dare not let go because it is only in him those promises are yes. We cling to Christ. Has God called you to suffer? Because he's good. Because he's good. If you're suffering this morning, God in his divine wisdom has called you to a hard place that you might cling to Christ. In the words of Spurgeon, I will kiss the wave that crashes me into the rock of Christ. Christian, if you are cursing the wave, the wave is sent by the Father to press you against the rock. Hold to Christ. And if you do not know Christ, maybe the suffering has brought you here this morning that you in faith might turn to him and be saved. If God in his goodness has brought suffering that has brought you to your knees that you might in humility trust Christ, that suffering is good, isn't it? I mean, obviously, my little heart suffering because of my brothers is humor, like it's humorous now. But man, I was broken. I was, I was sad. Suffering hurts. And that's okay. Because that leads us to Christ and reminds us that this world is passing away. 
and we will love heaven by resolve and Christ by faith because God is true. His word is true. And Christ is righteous and he gives us his righteousness and God is good and God is faithful. So we trust Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the sweet Savior who is not merely Savior from sin, but he is my Lord. And he is the Lord of all of those in this room who trust in him, who cling to him with arms of faith, who know that his life, death, and resurrection grants to them a righteous status that you have given to all those who believe in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray that in this room, you would strengthen our resolve. If health, if circumstances, if the internal weakness of our own soul constantly leads us toward temptation, suffering, and hurt, we resolve to trust Christ, to cling to him, to find our joy in the righteousness that has been granted to us from your hand, and to trust that that hand that has been so good to us in salvation is also good to us in the living of this life, enduring suffering, walking through the hurts that others cause us. Lord, we are so challenged to be faithful in the middle of suffering because suffering hurts so deeply. And the spectrum is broad. We do not know how others hurt. But Lord, I pray for those that are hurting, that are suffering, whose patience and endurance is growing weak, Lord, strengthen their hearts that they would not let go. Give them a commitment and a trust in Jesus Christ, knowing that from the same goodness that brings them salvation, your goodness will bring them through the suffering. Lord, I pray that we would always trust you, that we would never find that our confidence is in our own worth. It is a false confidence. It will lead to despair. Because both our hearts and your word tell us our, our own goodness is actually a refuse. Lord, help us to love Christ, to trust him, to know him, to gain him, to be conformed to him, to be owned by him. In the name of Jesus, we ask. Amen.